I am going to tell you a story that a powerful state doesn't want you to know about tens of thousands who have disappeared. Once they get into the hands of the military, they will be tortured brutally. It's a story so dangerous to tell that for some, it's meant ending up on a kill list. She was seen as a dangerous political actor and a threat to Pakistan's security, but she was a local hero. The Kill List, a six-part investigative podcast, available now. Get early access to episodes at cbc.ca slash listen, or by subscribing to the CBC True Crime Premium channel on Apple Podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, Matt Amha here, host of the Africas versus America. The conversation you're about to hear was recorded in Brooklyn's Wythe Hotel at On Air Fest a live audio storytelling festival. I spoke to Mike Africa Jr. on the main stage about what it was like to share his story with me for this series and his experience growing up in MOVE with authorities targeting his family. Here's our conversation. A heads up, this episode includes explicit language. And now we have an in-depth conversation on the new podcast from the CBC, Africa's vs. America. We have a little clip, so let's take a listen. In the summer of 2020, I watched the biggest protest movement in American history inspire the belief that change might finally arrive. The Black Lives Matter movement felt like a reckoning. But despite that energy and all of the conversation it inspired, there remained little mention of one of the most disproportionate uses of police violence in American history. We will never get a chance to embrace our children, hug them, and kiss them. Because they're not here. Because this government took them away from us. On Mother's Day 1985, the city of Philadelphia did something unthinkable to its own citizens on its own soil. I got a call around 3 o'clock in the morning. Lynn, get over here. It's going down. Click. For more than a decade, the city had been engaged in a standoff with a radical organization called MOVE. And the Philadelphia Police Department were now here to resolve the MOVE question for good. The police commissioner gets on his bullhorn and says, attention MOVE, this is America. You have to abide by the laws and rules of America. There were so many bullets in that morning shootout that they were ricocheting off the sidewalk like hail. And then... The helicopter takes off, it flies around, it circles, and then you hear an explosion, and the neighborhood shook so violently. I mean, it seemed like the ground moved. The city of Philadelphia dropped a bomb on Moves headquarters a house in the heart of a residential community, a black community, killing 11 people, five of them children, and burning 61 homes to the ground. My daughters were taken away by this fucking corrupt government. They dropped the bomb. Their aim was to kill us, plain and simple. Why is it that nearly 40 years on, so many have never heard of the MOVE bombing. And what does this cultural amnesia say about us? 
from CBC Podcasts and Confluential Films, the story of an American family's fight against the system, a family targeted by the U.S. government's war on black liberation, and what this forgotten American tragedy tells us about racism, power, and the price of change today. Black people will never get justice in America. I ain't talking about an individual person here and there. I'm talking about people, black people. We'll never get justice. It wasn't made for us. I'm Matthew Amha, and this is the Africa's Versus America, a seven-part podcast series, coming soon on CBC Listen and wherever you get your podcasts. All right, here to tell us all about the Africa's... Oh, you can give it up. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> here to tell us all about the Africa's Verse America, host Matthew Amha and activist speaker and MOVE member Mike Africa Jr. <sighs> okay, Mike. How are you guys doing? You guys good? <laughs> this guy's all about energy, if, 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 if you haven't understood that yet. Yeah. Uh, okay, so I think first it's important to say a little bit before we get into a kind of bigger discussion here that <clears throat> our show is ostensibly about its central event, which is the bombing of the move home. But, um, you know, we, we really tried as best as we could to use the bombing as a way into a much broader story, of course, like to talk about some of the cultural forces at that time that helped to facilitate the bombing, to talk about a lot of the cultural elements that were happening at that time, and to tell a more intimate story about the Move family, uh, you know, a family whose story has essentially been obscured in the public for the past 40 years. Um, and one of the first times that we're, you know, telling the 50-year history of the organization. And so, um, you know, Mike, why don't you kind of, you know, let's start at kind of like ground level here. Can you talk to us a little bit about what exactly MOVE was and is and what your relationship to the organization is? Sure, sure, sure. Um, so the MOVE organization was founded by my great uncle. His name was John Africa. And he started the organization with a simple mission, to protect life. And when he said life, he was talking about people, animals, and the environment. And as you know, if you fighting to protect something or fighting for a cause, especially as a black person or fighting against an industry, you're going to be targeted. You know, we see what's happening with the Keystone Pipeline and we see what's happening when we talk about issues like George Floyd and the Black Panther Party. There is a lot of, um, a lot of anger and, and racism and hate. And so just like the protesters and the uprisings um, experienced that thing, that's exactly what John Africa experienced too. Um, and he wanted, he wanted people to understand the importance of life. And he talked about the air and how it's polluted. We, believe, we breathe air, why would you pollute it? We drink water, we need it, we can't live without it, why would you poison it? And these industries that are, that, that are run by these industrialists, they didn't wanna stop. So instead of listening to what John Africa had to say, they targeted him. Yeah. And I, mean, I think it's also important to say that some of the early and most foundational members were also your parents too, right? Yeah, so, my so John Africa, um, probably half of the organization's 50 original members 
were his, his brothers and sisters, his nieces and nephews. And, and so my parents, so my mother is his niece. And then my dad chasing after my mom. <laughs> you know, ladies got that magic. So, you know, dad was like, okay, if she there, I'm there. So that, you know, and, and then so he, and then, you know, they had kids and we grew up in the organizations, some of us. And so, yeah, so yeah, so my, my parents and my mother's sisters and her brothers were also members in, in, um, in the organization's very beginning. Yeah. And so, you know, before we talk about what actually happened on the day on May 13th, talk a little bit about what life was like as a child of the organization prior to 85. As a child of the organization, so there, there was like two parts. On the one hand, the first part was like this camaraderie with the other kids. I mean, I was born in the organization and the, all of the kids, we all were very close and tight knit with each other, right? And so there was all, a lot of joy and, and of course, you know what kids do. We fight it, we fought about things. We, we had different cliques. There certain people liked certain other kids, whatever, because you know, that's how kids do, right? And we were just regular kids to each other. But then there was this other part because we were a part of this organization that was largely discriminated against, we had this outside threat that we were always fearful of. So because of that, it always made us uneasy, always made us nervous, we were always frightened. We always knew that something bad was going to happen because something bad was always happening. Yeah. And so I guess so, you know, to talk about the day itself. So the bombing happens on May 13th, 1985. It is, I think, you know, kind of in many ways, the culmination of a 13 year standoff between the MOVE organization and the Philadelphia Police Department. And so there had been standoffs in the past, right? Like we had 1978. I mean, at one point, the then mayor of the city, a guy named Frank Rizzo, establishes what is essentially a starvation blockade around the perimeter of the MOVE home as a way to try to force the family out of the house. And, you know, so we have a kind of standoff that continues on and continues on and continues on. But on May 13th, you know, the police have arrived outside of the house, it's like 500 cops on Osage Avenue. And why don't you pick up from the point, Gregor Samborg, who is the police commissioner of the city at that time, gets on the loudspeaker and he says, attention, move, this is America. And you want to talk about what happens after that? So, and I mean, just to say, right, like, do we need to give the backstory of how that we led up to that point? Sure. Because, so, the tense relationship between MOVE and the city, law enforcement in the city, got to the point where MOVE was, MOVE members couldn't walk the street without being arrested on site. Yeah. And then that harassment turned into MOVE reacting and getting into fights with police and being arrested anyway, and then move took a stand, say, look, we ain't doing this no more. If y'all wanna come at us, we gonna, we, gonna, we gonna fight you back, and yeah. we don't care that you police, and all of this thing. And then move had this idea, like, we gonna, we gonna come at you with whatever you come at us with. So yeah. if you come at us with fists, we'll fight you with fists. We saw what you did to the Black Panthers, stripping them in the middle of the night, humiliating them, intimidating them. We saw what you did to Martin Luther King. We saw you murder Malcolm X. If you come at us, you and your governmental schemes, we're gonna fight you back with, and we will meet you with whatever. 
you have. So that's how it started. Yeah. And then that led up to move getting arrested. Mm. Right? Yeah. And that arrest led to other move members protesting for their release. Yeah. And Gregor Sambor came to Moose House on May 13th and said, attention, move, this is America. You must abide by the laws of the American government and so and so and so and so. And move people said, we ain't going out. We ain't coming out. We know y'all the cops. We know what y'all want to do to us. You want to kill us, so we ain't coming to you. Yeah. And Gregor Sambor's and the police's decision was to attack. Yeah. There's a 90-minute period in, in the standoff that ensues over the course of the next five hours or so. But, there, but there's a 90-minute period of really kind of maximum violence where you see over 10,000 rounds are fired into the home, uh, a home that they know uh, contain 11 people, five of which include children. And so there are 10,000 rounds that are shot into the house. The police department pours more than 10,000 pounds of water into the house. And then they make the decision, in an effort to get the people that are inside the house outside, they make the decision to drop a bomb on the roof of the home, right? To drop a bomb on the roof of a home that contained 11 people. And 13 people, my mistake, yes. And, and that fire quickly spreads, and the fire department, the police department, and the city of Philadelphia make the, the decision to let the fire burn, right? They make a concerted effort not to put the fire out. After having just shot more than 10,000 pounds of water into the home, now that the home is on fire, they say, leave it alone. Right? And so that fire spreads to the houses on either side. Osage Avenue, the street in which this happened, is, is like a thin, narrow block. So the fire jumps the street and gets the houses on the other side of the street as well. And so by the end of the day, 62 homes are burned to the ground, 250 people lose their homes, left homeless, and 11 people are killed, five of whom include children. And so, you know, that's the, just the kind of like base rudiments of what happened that day. But for someone that was there, right, someone that lived through it, you were six years old when this happened. You weren't in the home on that day, but you were nearby. Can you talk a little bit about how you learned of what happened that day and what it was like to experience that as a six-year-old child? By the time I was six years old, I had been through two police attacks where the police came, raided our house, and took the people, took the adults, put them in jail, and put us children in an orphanage. And we always knew, me and the other kids that were in the house and the other children that were not in the house and the, that got bombed, we always knew that something else was coming. But we didn't know that would be what came. I was at my grandmother's house, which was four miles away. And I came outside just to see what was happening on the block, to see what other kids were on the street. And as I walked down the steps, one of my friends came walking up the street. He said, they dropped the bomb on move. My immediate response was, no, they didn't. And he pointed to the sky and he said, look, and the entire sky was black. You see those movies where the, where the, where the mushroom cloud from the atomic bomb and the bomb and the, and the smoke is just billowing up into the sky? That's what it looked like. Yeah. And I ran in the house and um, I saw you know, I went to see what was happening with my family, if they knew. Mm -hmm. And my, uh, my aunts, they were in the upstairs on the second floor in a room watching it on the news. Mm -hmm. And they were all huddled around each other with tears pouring down their faces. And I still didn't believe it. I still couldn't, it didn't register to me what was happening. I didn't understand what was going on. 
And then I saw my Aunt Louise, the person who owned the house, and she was out there that at the time watching it happen. She saw them drop the bomb and she was distraught. The police were pushing her away from the house and all this is on the news. And, um, but I still couldn't believe it was our house. And I said to my aunt, I said, that looks just like our house. And I said, that looks like Louise. And she looked at me and she said, my aunt, she looked at me and said, it is. And that, and then there were so many questions because I knew who lived at that house. I knew who was usually there. Meaning like you knew the specific I knew members the people. of the people. I knew the that children were that were in the house. I yeah. knew the people, but I didn't know who was there at the time. Because yeah. a lot of people believe that MOVE is like a, a group that lived communally. Everybody lived in the same house. It wasn't true. It was a dozen families who lived in a dozen different houses. But we, you know, as kids, you know how kids, can I spend a night at so-and-so's house? Yeah. So that's, we did that a lot. Yeah. So we rotated houses, but I, so I didn't know who was where. And, you know, so, but what I saw that day was the fire. Yeah. I saw the smoke. I saw the police. I saw our house and I saw my aunt and I still can't believe it. And so let's talk about some of who was inside that house. So there's this kind of singular act of violence that hangs over the show in, in, in so many ways. But I think it's important to also say that, you know, we begin in the contemporary moment. So we begin in 2021. Um, with you receiving a phone call from a journalist in the city of Philadelphia um, that called you to tell you that um, uh, the remains of one of the girls that was inside the home that day, a 14-year-old girl, her name was Catricia Tree Dotson Africa. She was inside the home. And, uh, you know, after the bombing, her family had been told that her remains had been reconciled, along with everyone else that was inside the home that the folks that, that were killed in the bombing, their remains had been buried and everything had been accounted for. But uh, Mike figures out that that wasn't what was happening and that uh, the, the remains of this 14-year-old girl were essentially secretly being used for the purposes of science at, at a major American classroom, yeah, yeah. And so they were being used, her remains were being used as teaching props for a course at Princeton University, a 14-year-old girl. Let's listen to a clip here that we have and then we'll continue talking about it. This is one of these cases where the material has some flesh on it, which I know is not uncommon actually in forensics and forensic anthropology. Uh, in this, case, this audio you're hearing is from a video first offered to undergraduate anthropology students at Princeton University, then posted on the free education website, Coursera. It's called Real Bones, Adventures in Forensic Anthropology. Professor Janet Monge and a student are standing at a display table. Behind them, rows and rows of skulls sit in glass cabinets. And laid out before them are human remains, what Monge refers to as the material. The bones are, I mean, you know, we would say like juicy, you know, meaning that you can tell that they are of a recently deceased individual. They have a lot of sort of sheen to them, at least this one does. As she speaks, the camera closes in on Monge, and she's got a partial femur in her hands. If you smell it, it doesn't actually smell bad, but it smells like just kind of greasy, like an older-style grease. Experts in her field have concluded that the bones she is handling belonged to a teenage girl who was killed in 1985. They also know what killed her. And the bones were actually burned as well. So it's got quite a complicated history. 
That is the voice of a professor named Janet Monge who was teaching this class at Princeton, an anthropology class. And she's talking about a 14-year-old girl, right? Like, this, these are the remains of, of a teenager. And this is not a kind of, um, you know, an abstraction. So I want, Mike, if you can talk a little bit about who Tree actually was to you first, if, if you feel, you know, if you could do that. I don't want to put you in a difficult position here, but, you know. Um, just so we can ground her in actual personhood, because this isn't an idea. This was a girl that you knew. Yeah. <clears throat> wow. Every time I hear that, is it takes me back the same way. Um, Tree was the oldest of all of us, you know, the kids, man. And um, I didn't know her name was Katricia. I thought we called her Tree because she was the highest climber. <laughs> you know what I mean? When we would go to the park, I, it's, it's, we went to a new park, a park that we used to go to Cobbs Creek Park every day. If we went to a new park, she would look, scan the sky for the tallest tree, and that's the one she would go climb. I thought that's why her name was Tree. And um, because she was the oldest, and there were a lot of kids, 20-something, maybe 30 kids, it was a lot of us. And you know how it is when you're the oldest, you get charged with a lot of parental type activities, you know? So she helped wash clothes. She helped hold, hold the other little kids' hands when we crossed streets. Um, something that I found out that I, I don't know, it just felt very special to me, right? I found her birth certificate, I found Tree's birth certificate I've never, never seen it before. We were, <laughs> I, was born, I was born in a jail cell, um, and my parents gave birth to their kids at home because we, that's how Move did things, natural childbirths. And I was born in jail cell because my parents were arrested and so-and-so and so-and-so. But so I, I, didn't know, I didn't know Tree's birthday, and I don't think she knew mine. But as we start to uncover some of these things, we're digging through these records, and I found out that we shared a shared birthday. Yeah, I thought that was real special. It was like, I don't know, it was like a hug from God or something. I don't know. I want to talk quickly about, you know, incidents of violence like this don't happen in a vacuum, right? They are facilitated over many years by many different forces, public and private. And I think, you know, it's important that we talk about the role of the press in the city at that time and to talk about Move's historical relationship with the media. I think... <clears throat> You know, for me, some of what I found compelling, disturbing about the story earlier on particularly was the way that we saw moved described so often. You know, the fact that the group, like I think we all kind of intellectually understand, and for those that were alive, they personally understand the way that the kind of relationship that the press had with the movement at that time and, you know, the kind of derogatory language that was often used. Uh, you know, if you look back now and you look at coverage of like Stokely Carmichael or SNCC or Malcolm X, it's, it's all there. But if you have a look at the way that MOVE was described in the local press, I'm talking like literally, you know, animalistic terms, like describing, comparing them to monkeys, comparing them to rats, the mayor of the city getting on national broadcasts and saying that they're a swamp people, you know, like just the most derogatory, outlandish stuff you can imagine. 
And so what I want to ask you about is, I want to ask you about uh, the organization's historical relationship to the press, but also about the implications of that kind of language. What are the implications of that kind of coverage when you see members of the media describing black people and black organizations essentially as animals? You know what? It was, it's so funny to me that they said these things and that I remember reading or hearing people say these things when I was a kid, but it was, it was weird to me because, okay, so our belief is life. And monkeys, animals, they, we didn't have a problem with monkeys or animals. So when they said monkeys, they said moves stand for monkeys on vines everywhere. And our response usually was, I'd rather be a monkey than to be you. <laughs> monkeys don't pollute the air. They don't destroy their environment. They don't destroy, like, you, humans go to the moon and drop bombs on the moon. I'd rather be a monkey than to be you. So, I mean, obviously that isn't, Something that's good to, you know, because I was, I didn't understand what that really meant and how hurtful they were actually trying to be. But to hear it, swamp, swamps. Yep, you know, my, grandfa my grandfather came from the swamps of, uh, of uh, Pensacola in Florida. And they ate good and everybody was healthy and everybody was cool. And you know what? I'd rather be in the swamp than to be in this dirty city that's polluting everything every day. So that was the one way that I took it. But then when I got older, I realized that they didn't mean it the way that I was taking it. Because my belief is life, they meant it, you know, I took it a certain way, but they meant it to be hurtful. And what that meant was, because they and the public see life and animals and monkeys and swamps as dirty, nasty, ugly, beneath human, that meant that they could grab you by your hair and throw you across the street. And their other neighbors laugh about it. Or, the, uh, when, you, when you're at, at, uh, at, a pro, at, a, at a city hall passing out flyers to talk about your parents that are in prison that you're trying to get out, that meant that, the, that somebody could come by and hawk spit on you, right? And that's, these are things that happen to us regularly. So the discrimination that we received, it was like the way that they did with the Native Americans. You're going to scalp them. You're going to kill the buffalo. You're going to com completely destroy their resources and then call them savage. And so the discrimination is the, the, what happened to move could not have been done without the discrimination that the press put on us. They did those things in the press so that they could uh, use the when the opinion of the people to justify what they did. And so when the people in the community see what happened, they say, well, they got what they deserved because they were swamp people, because they were monkeys on vines everywhere, because they didn't take a bath. I remember, I remember talking to my uncle Chuck. Chuck spent 42 years in prison. He came home, he told me a story. He said, Mike, he said, the discrimination is so real. He said, I remember sitting in my cell with a towel wrapped around me and I'm dripping wet because I just got out of the shower. And a brother walked up to me and said, hey Chuck, I hear move, don't take a bath, is that true? I'm sitting here, he said, he said, I looked at my cellie and said, this is what I got to deal with. I'm sitting here dripping wet. He can see me, but he still asks, is that true? That's how ingrained the programming was. That's how ingrained it is. Because, like, <laughs> you know what? <laughs> yeah, that's how ingrained it is. Because you, know you know it's real. Like, the news and this Every time you turn around, there's another way and layer of programming to keep people in order to go in line. And if you don't follow their rules 
And their rules could be wrong as two left shoes, but don't matter. If you don't follow their rules, you're a target. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So let's talk a little bit about the media, though. So, and, you know, as you can imagine, we, like, me and Mike have had many of these conversations, obviously, I'm a journalist, right? And so this is someone that has a well-founded skepticism of the press, obviously. And so we have to navigate, you know, have to navigate and forge a way of working while still obviously, you know, as a reporter remaining faithful to the tenets of journalism of like corroboration, verification, making sure that everything was copacetic. Um, But I think that, you know, part of why we were able to do this is that I'm obviously, you know, I'm a young black journalist. I'm from Toronto, Canada. I'm not American. Although, you know, I've been to the country many times and I have my own experiences here. But I had to be honest with Mike very early on about saying, you know, a lot of the experiences that he has with the police, a lot of the experiences that he had um, in his neighborhood, although, you know, I didn't live through the, the move bombing, I had my own too. And I felt, you know, while like traditionally journalists might not feel comfortable being honest about that with a source for a story, I felt like I needed to be. Because otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to ethically speak to him in the way that I was. It would not have been available to me. I would have been a voyeur, you know, and, 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 and I was not a voyeur. And so we had to have a lot of these honest conversations, right? A ton of them. And so, you know, as someone that has this well-founded skepticism of the media, like, why was it you think that you felt comfortable giving us your story in the way that you did and talking so openly and freely? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I do a lot of interviews, but a lot of interviews are answering questions. But when you, when you have a, a compatibility, you can let your hair down, you can relax, that's important when you're telling a story that is the kind of story where people got killed and, and it's not over. And so like, I think to, to going through some of the information, that we, the, uh, the experiences you shared with me, we talked about Ethiopia and that whole thing because of, who was it? Uh, give 10 cents a day and we're gonna save Ethiopia. Remember all of that? And like, and Matt, I was like, hey Matt, did you see any of that money? <laughs> nah. And so like, just being able to connect on that level, on that human level, it makes it easier to have these conversations. Plus, like, um, you know, like, news, the, Mumia Abu-Jamal, good example. I, Mumia Abu-Jamal is a journalist, right? But he's also like part of our family. He told me, he said, Mike, my editor told me, if you see a house on fire and there's somebody inside, get the story and then go try to save the people. You know what I'm saying? And I felt like I understand the job of the journalist is to report, right? To report the news. But I think that like from talking to you, it was more about just trying to get a story. It was more about trying to tell a st- help someone tell a story and not only tell a story, but also convey it to an audience so that people can really learn what happened and potentially somebody can do something about it so we can prevent this from happening to other people. And so to also be honest, you know, like I think that my experience is one that I share with a lot of my peers that, that are also in journalism, particularly young 
journalists of color, young black journalists, where like, you know, we often have to straddle an interesting position where like we are often weaponized by these industries. We are often weaponized by the places that employ us and used and sent out to, uh, you know, communities and areas that they otherwise would have no access to. And so they kind of use us as these proxies to get what they want. And we often become kind of unwitting collaborators at times, you know. And so this story was really an opportunity to undo that process entirely and to challenge it. And also to have it be reflected in the series. Because, you know, we, like, we talk about all of this explicitly over the course of the series. You know, there are things, for example, that Mike shared with me that I just did not feel comfortable including in the show. It's too personal, you know. It's too personal. It's too intimate. It would not be ethical. I think traditionally, the kind of traditional conventions of journalism would see me take that, you know, and solicit it out to the public because it's shiny and because people would be interested by it. But, you know, I think there's a kind of more ethical and evolved way of going about telling the story. And so much of what we got is due to that arrangement that we created for one another. Um, okay, I'm, I'm gonna now jump ahead a little bit because we're running out of time a little bit. But um, you have talked about the fact that you were born in a prison cell, right? And that was related to a kind of earlier incident between MOVE and the Philadelphia Police Department that saw um, both of your parents go to prison, right? And, and they were two of nine members of the organization that were charged with 30 to 100 years. And, um, uh, you know, it, it was a shootout between the organization and the Philadelphia Police Department. Mike's mother was eight months pregnant with him when that happened. And so he was born under pretty incredible conditions. And I want to play a little bit of um, us talking about that in the show. This is his mother, Janine, by the way. Wake up. I think I'm getting ready to have the baby. And she said, are you sure? I said, But three days earlier, Debbie had given birth with her only cellmate, Janine Africa, as witness. No anesthetic, no medical equipment. She said, oh, man, she, she was nervous. And, you know, the contractions came and they came closer and closer. And I didn't want to make a cell. Because, you know, a lot of times when women have babies, they they loud or they grunting or they just like, you know, just pushing. And so I didn't want to make a sound. I was so quiet. And when you were finally born, you would kind of cry a little bit. So Debbie cut her son's umbilical cord with her teeth. I wiped you off while Janine had bought me a pail of water and some warm towels and I wiped you off and everything. And uh, the move women were kept out of the general population and six cells at the far end of the block. And they all helped to keep the baby's birth a secret from guards. So every time you would make a little squeal or anything like that, you know, Jenny was making like a little bit of noise. Well, I had you for like a couple of hours before they let us out because you're locked in at night. So about six o'clock in the morning, they opened the doors. Well, I had already had them for a couple of hours. And then when everybody, Janine said, hey, y'all, guess what? Debbie had the baby. I was like, what? They was screaming. She said, shh, be quiet, be quiet. We don't want them to come back right. here. So everybody came in the room and they was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Look at him. He's so cute. He got curly hair. <laughs> just, I had know, curly just hair? Really, yes, a lot of curly hair, too. So when you think about your mother in that cell, having you under the nose of the state, essentially, you know, the, the, the prison guards were not aware of his birth until it was announced in open court, right? So the, that's another pretty incredible story where, um, you know, move are on trial in, in, in relation to the shootout that happened. Mike is born secretly in prison. And one of the other move women in open court announces the fact that this young boy was secretly born. 
and there's an uproar in the courtroom. People do not believe it, you know, they do not believe it. We have him in, in the series reading the court transcript of that announcement being made in court, which is pretty remarkable. But um, yeah, so I wanna ask you about, when you, know, when, when you think about your mother in that situation, and I'm sure you guys have had tons of conversations about it, what image comes to mind? <laughs> she bit the umbilical cord. <laughs> <laughs> what? I have four children. I've seen every one of them born from start to finish. Yeah. <laughs> I never saw that. Um, man. And then, okay, so <clears throat> she didn't talk. Okay, so, so when I was born, when I would make, she talked about when I would make sounds and stuff, right? Um, the, the remarkable thing about that was um, the women were trying to protect me and my mom which is why Janet announced in court that I was born. Exactly, yeah. So Merle would stand in front of the cell and she would sing so that the guards wouldn't hear the sounds of a baby. You know, and that was, I, that's one thing that always come to mind. Um, and the other thing was when Janet went to court, she announced in court, first she gave my dad a note that said, your beautiful son is born. She didn't say beautiful, but I said that. <laughs> and she, he, you know, he took the note and then she went straight and said, Judge, I want to make an announcement. Debbie Africa had a baby. He's strong. And she began to say, I want this on the record. She pointed to Lynn Washington, who you can also hear in the, in the podcast. She pointed to Lynn Washington and said, write it down to the stenographer, to everyone in the courtroom. Remember this. And she said she did it because she didn't want the guards or the prison officials or whoever to try to kill me and say I never existed. She said the reason she thought that is because they had done that before. So that's what comes to mind for me, the protection that the other move women had for me and my mom until I was, until they, they kept me in that cell until my grandmother and my Aunt Louise came to the hospital. They met my mom at the hospital and got protection from the move women until my grandmother took me home. Yeah. And so it's important to say, right? So Mike was born in prison and they managed to get him and Debbie three days. So she had three full days with her newborn child before the state intervened and figured out exactly what, what, had, what had taken place. So let's close out here on Birdie. Let's talk a little bit about Birdie, right? So getting back to the bombing, you know, so 11 people die in this, in, in this incident, five of whom were kids one of whom we've already talked about in, in, in Tree, but there are two survivors of the bombing. One is an adult woman named Ramona Africa, and the other was a 13-year-old boy named Birdie Africa. And, you know, Birdie's story was one that I found particularly remarkable. We were able to speak with his father as well as part of the series because, you know, he survives essentially because his mother's dying act was to push, was to throw herself out into gunfire and launch her 13-year-old kid out of the move house as it's burning, right? And, and a detail that we haven't talked about here, and I think one of the more pernicious elements of this entire story, is that while the house is on fire, and there are 11 people inside, and they're refusing to put the fire out, move are trying to escape out of the back of the home, right? There's a back alleyway adjacent to the house, and they're trying to get out of the house. And the police are positioned behind the home, and they are shooting them back into the house, right? So they're shooting folks that are trying to escape an inferno and pushing them back into the home. Um, but this 13-year-old boy ends up escaping because of his mother's dying act. The cop that ends up rescuing Birdie is a man named James Berghire, 
there's a, he's a police officer that's positioned behind the house and he's with um, others, some of the other men that were shooting some of the family members back into the home. Birdie ends up trying to climb a fence and he falls and he's landed in water. He's face down in water. And he's 13 years old, but he's a tiny, tiny, real thin 13-year-old boy. He's lying face down in water, and he's not getting up. And so this police officer, James Burkheyer, uh, against the advice of the other men that he was stationed with, gets up and pulls Bertie and takes him to safety. Right? So he's carrying this 13-year-old boy, and they put him in the back of a police car. And there's a kind of indelible image of Bertie after the incident, essentially naked, sitting in, 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 in the back of this police car, like he's contraband or something. Like this boy has just survived the most unbelievable thing that can happen to a human being, right? It's, it's, it's an incredible image. Um, so uh, what ends up happening with James Burkheyer is so he has this experience of saving the life of Birdie Africa. And what ends up happening is that, you know, I think, you know, you might expect that the Philadelphia Police Department would laud him as a hero, that he would be regarded as a hero for saving the life of this child. What ends up happening instead is he goes back to work and he goes to his locker, and written across his locker are the words nigger lover, right? That's what, he was, that, that's what he was confronted by after having come back from work. And he eventually becomes the first police officer in the, in, in, in the history of the Philadelphia Police Department to uh, leave the force because of PTSD, because of the experiences that he had. Um, and I know you have spoken with James Burkhire before. You guys have had conversations. I think, and you know, the story of Birdie is like, it's obviously incredible, and it is, um, you know, awful to listen to. But what it does is, uh, you know, so often the move story is told in, in such a way that it's a kind of bureaucratic accident, that it's a story of like runaway government, that things just got out of control. But there was there were no, you know, that the kind of the police department had no designs for what they were going to do. Things just kind of happened. Right? We also spoke with the mayor of uh, Philadelphia at that time that had a pretty remarkable interview, but we don't really have much time to talk about it. But, um, you know, but the story of Birdie recenters the story on race. The fact that this police officer rescues a child and has nigger lover scrawled on his locker as a result of that, you know, I think to me makes it pretty clear that in some way you know, race is, center, is central to the story and central to the relationship that the police department has with the family. So let's just talk finally about Berghire and about, um, you know, what would you say to people that say, you know, what, ha what ended up happening to the Mouffe family was about the lifestyle. Race had nothing to do with it. People that tried to strip race out of the story. What would you say about that? Race had nothing to do with it. Uh, well, this whole thing is all racist. I mean, it's, I don't know. I think that's, how can people, oh my God, we were brought here in chains. That ain't over. Right. I mean, George Floyd was killed the way he was killed. That's not over. Uh, racism is in all aspects of this entire system in the way it's made. And when they dropped the bomb or move, that was no different. Right. I mean, um, and the lifestyle, it was our lifestyle. Was it was that did, did Martin Luther King live like we lived? Did Malcolm X live like we live? Did any of the other millions of people, whoever was killed, by the government and their systems and their police forces, they didn't live like we lived. So no, I think it had nothing to do, it, it had nothing to do with that in that way. It has something to do with the fact that people were talking about fighting for a change and a change that they didn't want. When you talk about being self-sufficient, you're gonna have a fight on your hands. We ain't paying for the water. We, it's natural, it's free. Why we, why, God give it to us for free, why we gotta pay the water company? Does that make any sense? So water company gonna say, well, send the people. So that's what happened. 
um, race. I think that the fact that that Locker was tagged with that label, I think is disgusting. I think that they are completely overlooking the fact that this is a child that he saved. You know, um, I think the fact that they brought Wilson Good in, who was a black mayor, um, was an issue of race too, because they wanted to win the opinion of the black people in Philadelphia as a city that is 51% black at the time. So I think race has a lot to do with it, but I think it's not the only thing. Um, classism, uh, pow power, you know, structures and all of that, there's a lot in there. Uh, I think the most important thing is that there was a person on the Philadelphia police force who had enough feelings and enough guts to actually go against what he knew his partners and his, the other people in the police force were like, but he saw a child and he went to save him. Yeah. So the, this is the last comment here. I know we've been out of time, but I, but I just want to say that I think in a lot of the interviews and conversations I've had to have as it relates to this series, the question that probably comes up most is why people don't remember this, you know? And so before I put that to you, I think it's important that we ground it in the contemporary world by saying that, you know, typically I give an answer about kind of, you know, like nations tend to turn toward innocence and we tend to refuse stories that ask us questions that we're not ready to answer. That, you know, as nations, you know, I'm Canadian and Canada is absolutely no different. If you speak to a black Brit, if you speak to a black African immigrant in France, they will tell you the same thing. You know, people just aren't ready to have these stories oftentimes. But I think that um, there's a kind of higher level conversation, which is that just about every juncture in American history has been marked by an effort to obscure black history constantly, whether it's the Civil War period, whether it's Reconstruction, whether it's the Civil Rights period, whether it is the black power era or the contemporary world now. I think, you know, you need not look any further than the state of Florida right now to understand that the war on black studies is happening now, right? It's no accident that people don't remember these stories. So, you know, I think to you now, Mike, we, and we talked a little bit about this backstage. Are you hopeful that there may be more awareness into this story? You know, as, as you begin to see the move story mainstreamed a little bit, what do you hope that people take away from things at the end of the day? What do you hope that people take away from your story, from the story of your family? I hope people will see what happened and do what's necessary to prevent this from happening to other people. You know what I mean? Like, whatever needs to happen, I don't care. If, look, change some laws. People say abolish the police and defund the police and all of these things. I don't know what the solution is in that regard necessarily um, because I know people need to feel safe and all of that. But I think that we definitely need to have an open conversation about what that looks like so that we can make changes because it's not – and the issues aren't just the, just the police, right? The issues aren't just government because there's a lot of people in just in communities that are doing things. We need to do what's necessary to, to my, my thing is, I got this thing, I say, <laughs> it might sound ridiculous. Plant yourself a garden and, and love your own health. If you love yourself, if you love your health, if you're committed to that and you exude that, you tell your neighbor about that, be kind to one another, that's, all, that's what it's all about for me. You know, MOVE don't have, even within the organization, everybody don't love MOVE. Right. You, everybody don't love move. Even move. People don't love the way move did things or do things or whatever. But I don't I don't care about none of that. All I care about is love, peace and healing. You know, and I think that if people were more concerned about that, they would be we have a better, better world and better situations. Yeah. So I think, you know, we've hit our time. I hope you guys all have time to check out the show potentially. We and, you know, huh? We went over time. We went over time. Yeah, I know. Yeah, we did go over time. So thank you all for listening. I appreciate it. Thank you.
Let's keep it going for Mike and Matt. You've been listening to a live recording from On Air Fest in Brooklyn, New York. I was joined on stage by Mike Africa Jr. The Africa's Versus America is written and produced by me, Matthew Amha, and Jessica Lindsay. Our story editor is Damon Fairless, and our producer is Alina Ghosh. Sound design by Evan Kelly. Emily Cannell is our coordinating producer. Emily Mathieu is our fact checker. Our senior producer is Willow Smith. Consulting producers for Confluential are Tommy Oliver and Keith Gianette. Executive producers for CBC Podcasts are Cecil Fernandez and Chris Oak. Arif Narani is the director of CBC Podcasts. You can listen to all seven episodes of The Africa's Versus America on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.